Hi, I'm Alex, and welcome to the Stock Stories Podcast. This is the podcast where we decode investing principles by analyzing the businesses behind the stock, as well as looking at mental models in order to help you become a better investor. Let's go. Welcome. Welcome to the Stock Stories Podcast. Again, my name is Alex and I am your host and stock storyteller for today. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited about delivering this episode to you. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoy recording it. So thank you again for listening. And I hope if you have listened to the show the last few weeks, I hope you enjoyed the kind of mini series that we did with space investing. It's kind of an entirely new topic for me, but a fascinating one for sure. We talked about Virgin Galactic and how Richard Branson founded that and all the trials and tribulations of that company. And and now it looks like they're achieving some real success and kind of excited to see the story with that. But uh, from an investment perspective, I think it's just kind of too new and untested waters uh, for me personally. But It's very interesting for sure. And then last week we talked about space investing from a crowdfunding perspective. We had an interview featuring Aaron Burnett of Space Ventures. I hope you enjoyed that episode as well. Kind of a different side of things. You know, sometimes we focus so much on just the public investing sphere. But I just wanted you to know if you weren't aware that there are ways to invest in companies outside of the stock market. You can actually buy private companies and using a crowdfunding platform is one of the most accessible ways to do it. And so that definitely aligns with my mission here on this show is helping you as an individual investor um, achieve more success and have more options with your investing process. So I hope you enjoyed those episodes. One thing I wanted to get back to, though, for sure, is I've just been fascinated with this hotel industry, with the hotel industry, I should say. Recently, we talked about Marriott, and I wanted to get into a little bit of uh, some of the adjacent companies surrounding Marriott. You know, we talked about spinoffs and some of the companies that used to be a part of what is now Marriott International, but are no longer a part of it. And you know what? Some of those are still publicly traded. So I figured, hey, what the heck? I'll research them too. So with that, let's talk about Marriott Vacations Worldwide. All right, let's talk about Marriott Vacations Worldwide, ticker symbol VAC. So just as a little bit of context, if you have not already listened to the Marriott International episode, go ahead and check that out. It's episode 135 in order to hear more about the history of the Marriott organization in general. And that can give you a little bit of context for this episode. So the way that we structure these episodes are usually we talk about the history of the company, then move on to the current business model with some look at the financials, and then we look at valuation and then some closing thoughts. So first, let's talk about the history. What 
actually happened? What was Marriott Vacations worldwide? Well, as you might guess, it was a part of Marriott International before. And Marriott Vacations Worldwide is a quote-unquote vacation club or a timeshare company. And this was the first big hospitality brand to ever enter the timeshare industry. So it was kind of a big deal. Now, Marriott International spun off this company back in 2011. So if you were a shareholder in the old Marriott, for every share that you owned, you would have received one share of the new company. Now, in 2010, the Marriott Vacations Club Destinations program was introduced, and that let timeshare owners use annually allotted points to redeem for hotel stays and getaway experiences. So this is a little different from the old system, which was instead of having a points-based system, it was purely based on time. So if you had one week or two weeks a year that you had already booked with a timeshare, then you were kind of really stuck into the situation, but it moved to a points-based system. And don't worry, I'll cover the basics and fundamental structure of what a timeshare is in a moment. If you, if, if I'm, t- I'm saying this and you're like, I've never heard of what a timeshare is, I'm going to explain that in a moment. But as far as the history of Marriott Vacations Club, that was a big point in their history was moving to a points-based system. Now, in April 2018, the company made a major acquisition and they purchased a company called ILG Inc. And that stands for Interval Leisure Group. And they paid $4.7 billion for it. Now, the reason that this was important is that this company was a parent of a firm called Interval International, and that company was one of the largest timeshare companies in the world. And just for some context, there are other big timeshare companies that are out there, such as Wyndham Worldwide and RCI. Now, when this deal was made, it was a combination of cash and stock, and if you were an ILG shareholder, you received $14.75 in cash as well as 0.165 shares of the new company for every ILG share you owned. Now, the reason that I'm sharing all these share um, swap arrangements and ratios with you is just to basically remind you and teach you that when you own shares of a company, when you get bought out by another company, sometimes it doesn't always necessarily just come as you exchanging a share for a share. Sometimes you'll get shares in higher ratios. Sometimes you'll get shares in lower ratios, just depending on the capital structure of the company that is acquiring you and then the capital structure of the company that you already own. And not only that, sometimes you actually just get paid out in cash too. I mean, in this case, if you were an ILG shareholder, you got cash and you got to be a part owner in the new company. So it was a pretty sweet deal. So just wanted to bring that up because a lot of people get confused about that and don't understand how it actually works when you're a shareholder and a company buys out the company that you own shares in. So as far as Marriott Vacation Club goes, this was pretty significant because with this deal, they got access to over 100 resort properties and over 650,000 owners. I mean, at the time of their spinoff, they had just about 400,000 owners, aka customers in their system. So also they got access to new brands with this deal, such as Vistana and a brand that you may also have heard of, Hyatt, Hyatt Vacation Ownership Portfolios. So not only could they sell with their Marriott brand, but also with the Hyatt brand and Vistana brands as well. Okay, so that's kind of a brief history of the Vacation Club. And let's get into the nitty gritty of just what is a timeshare? Let's talk about the business overview right now. Well, 
A timeshare is a concept where instead of paying for vacations as you take them, you essentially pre-purchase the right to stay at a hotel for a certain location for a certain period of time. And then you retain those rights within a certain network of hotels and resorts. Now, obviously, there are fees and costs associated with this, but basically, you're kind of like prepaying for a vacation is how you can think about it if you're unfamiliar with the concept. So instead of just saying, hey, I want to travel to New York City and I want to stay at a resort, maybe that's a bad example. <laughs> Let's pick another example. I don't know. Say you want to go to Cancun, Mexico, and you want to stay at a resort in beautiful, sunny Cancun, Mexico. Well, you could just look up the hotels and find room availability and then book a trip and then just go. Or you could say, hey, I'd rather guarantee that I'm going to be able to stay at a certain place for a certain time of year, every year, no matter what, at a certain property, and I'm willing to prepay for those benefits, for the stability, basically. And that is basically what a timeshare is. You're, quote unquote, owning time <laughs> in, in a way, if you think about it. And this is kind of a controversial concept, and I have my own personal beliefs on it, which we'll get into. But this is basically what the business model of Marriott Vacation Club is based around. It's about selling time. So there are two variations of vacation ownership products that are sold within this industry, within this little niche. You have something that's called a timeshare estate, and that means that you actually get real fractional interests in the actual real estate. So it's kind of like you and, and me going in on buying a, a home. Maybe we split the ownership 50%, 50%. Each of us has an actual claim to the house itself. Contrast that with something called a timeshare license. Now, this is a contractual right to use. So you and I, in this scenario, we wouldn't actually own the home. We would just own the right to use it. So from all practical purposes, it doesn't really matter in the sense because if your whole intention is to just use the property, then that's fine. But there is a big difference as far as the ownership is concerned because then you and I wouldn't actually own the property. Maybe someone else would just own the property and have the right to sell it or make upgrades or whatever the case may be, other rights that owners have for real property. So those are the two main different types of vacation ownership products. Now, the benefits of these products are, like I mentioned, you get less volatility. So you have less volatility in price than hotel rates. So sometimes that vacation destinations have really popular times a year that people want to go travel to them. Uh, for example, I'll use the example that I just used, Cancun, Mexico. They're very popular in the December time frame because a lot of people from America go to vacation there uh, when they're off for their Christmas holiday break. So hotel ra rates tend to skyrocket during those times because demand exceeds supply. So the prices go way up. But if you had committed to a timeshare ahead of time, you would be usually locked in to a set rate that you have already prepaid so that you don't really have to worry about that. You just say, okay, I know I have my week from December 10th to December 17th or whatever it is, and I've already paid it, and that's, that's it. I'm good. So that's one of the benefits to these programs. Also, they typically have larger rooms with more amenities than typical hotel rooms because they're kind of like villa style, I guess you could say. 
um, or more of like a home style feel than your typical hotel room. And then also the other benefit is psychologically, there's a factor at play here too, because you have this commitment to vacation. I mean, if you've already prepaid for your vacation to go somewhere, then in your mind, you're thinking, okay, like I've already paid for this. I've already booked this. This is time for my family to get out there and enjoy ourselves. Well, you're already committing to a vacation, whereas many people, especially I'll pick on Americans right now, like we're terrible at taking vacation. <laughs> like, we just, a lot of us like work all the time and we never take any time off. So this commitment to vacation is kind of this psychological boost or trigger, if you will, to go out and have good times with family and friends. So there's that aspect of it. And that definitely plays into some people's lives more than others. But nevertheless, it is a factor. Now, you can exchange your timeshare within a certain network. But here's the thing. Supply and demand can vary greatly depending on the location of the resort and the time of year. So remember that price stability that I just mentioned? Well, that's technically true. But if you're trying to exchange your points or exchange your time, you deal with this point marketplace that kind of has similar supply and demand relationship as the real world does, or I should say, as the cash marketplace does, um, like not including the timeshare system. So you still have to weigh this ability to actually execute an exchange if you want to exchange your points or your time from one location or one time a year to another. Now, I've been to more than my fair share of timeshare presentations and events over the years. And so from personal experience, I can basically tell you how it works. So timeshare companies will often entice potential prospects with sometimes extravagant marketing tactics. I mean, when I was younger, going to timeshare presentations was a thing in my family. I remember we went on vacation to Florida one time. And then in addition to our regular family vacation activities, we must have went to at least three different timeshare presentations while we were there. And this is back in the probably early 2000s or late 90s. <laughs> and the draw is usually some kind of tangible incentive to get the family to come in, the potential prospects to come in. Like they'll offer you a free breakfast, maybe dinner at a fancy restaurant or tickets to a show, something like that. Now, one thing that I remember as a kid is they even tried to hustle on the kids too. And I remember being taken to this playroom, which was basically a place to keep children occupied while the sales presentation was being made to the parents. But you know what? I wasn't thinking about that at the time. As a kid, I was mesmerized with the room. This room was decked out with arcade games from wall to wall, floor to ceiling. I'd never seen anything like it. And for the next two hours, I was in heaven. I'd never seen so many video games before. And when my parents finally came to get my sister and I, I did not want to leave. So while that is happening, in another room, the sales pitch is actually happening with the adults. So typically what goes on is there's a presentation, usually a video or combination of video and live speaking, and that talks about all the good things about timeshares, you know, guaranteed vacation with your family, you get access to all these destinations all over the world, et cetera, et cetera. Now, then the salesperson will sit down with you and usually your significant other who they encourage you to bring along. And then they go through kind of a heavy sales pitch about the product. And they spend a lot of time, sometimes two or three hours. Honestly, sometimes it's a long time. They sit with you and they use various methods to try to persuade you to buy. Now, I won't go into all the details here about how they do it. 
But mark my words, there has got to be some amazing psychologists working for these timeshare companies because they definitely know what they're doing as far as employing strong, persuasive elements in their timeshare pitches. Like their marketing and sales is on point. That's basically how this business business works. So back to the business side of things. I mean, the appeal is that this model can create a lot of cash flow. And that's possible when you have these strong sales and marketing teams that can basically entice a couple or a young family to come in for these presentations and put down a lot of money to rent time. Now, let's see why that is. I mean, think about the analogy of renting out a home, okay? In a typical arrangement, you find a tenant, you get them to sign a lease for 12 months, and then you collect a monthly rent from that tenant. Now, imagine instead of renting to a single tenant, you rent out to 50 tenants, one for each week of the year, And then you leave two weeks open just in case you need to upgrade your property, do some property maintenance. Now you can charge significantly more on a per week basis than you can on a monthly basis. Not only that, but you have these other factors at play. So check this out. Number one, a lot of people probably won't use their allotted week, (laughs) which lightens the maintenance load on the property, right? I mean, do you really expect all 50 families or all 50 people to use the property on that a lot of time? Probably not. I mean, things come up in life. People will commit to things, but then they'll back out. Things happen, right? So you have that going for you as the person on the other side of the deal. Number two, you're getting recurring revenue though, and you're getting it on a more frequent basis. So instead of getting revenue, say on a monthly basis, you may be getting it on a weekly basis or a monthly basis from multiple people. And that brings me to number three, you're diversifying your revenue base because you're renting to 50 people instead of one. I mean, if a few people fall on hard times and they lose their time, but they can't pay up, I mean, you'll be all right. And then number four, you can charge additional fees for maintenance to each customer. You can charge people for having to maintain the property in addition to the amount they're paying for actual use of the property. So you can see how this model works by looking at some related businesses. I mean, the things that came to my mind are Airbnb and its competitor VRBO, which stands for Vacation Rental by Owner. Now, these companies, they don't own or operate the properties that you find on their platforms. They just take a cut of the revenue by providing the marketplace between buyers and sellers. That's basically what they do. However, the model is the same if we consider Airbnb hosts. So think about it as an Airbnb host. They can rent out the same unit several times per month if it's in demand and then collect more profit overall than if they were to opt for a long-term lease with a single tenant. So this is kind of the same thing that Marriott Vacation Worldwide does. They make money primarily by selling vacation ownership directly to individuals and to families. And they also make money through exchanges and third-party management. So we'll get into that in a moment. And it's about a 90% to 10% split as far as the revenue between the two ways that they make money. So to rephrase that, the vast majority of the money that this company makes is by selling timeshares or vacation clubs, however you want to refer to it as. And the other 10% is made on miscellaneous things like exchanging exchange fees and management fees. So what are the brands that Marriott Vacation Club operates under? Well, we mentioned Marriott and we mentioned Hyatt and Vistana earlier, but they also operate other brands like Sheraton, The Westin, they operate Ritz-Carlton, 
and St. Regis properties too. Now, one thing that's key for this business is managing inventory. And the reason that that's important is because customers' demands need to be satisfied. I mean, people want certain locations at certain times a year and maintenance costs have to be accounted for. I mean, if you're expecting a lot of people to stay at a particular resort at a certain point in time, you're going to shift your resources accordingly to maintain that property and try to allocate your costs appropriately. But if the demand supply curve or balance rather shifts suddenly, then you have to reallocate your resources as a business rapidly. So that's one thing that you have to think about with a business like this. Now, the company, as of December of 2019, they got over 660,000 vacation owners. Now, frankly, that's more than I would have expected. I kind of thought that timeshares were kind of a dying industry, but they actually have a lot of people. And we'll get into why I think this is uh, in a few minutes later in the episode. So here's a breakdown of how they actually made money in 2019. Now, it's not just from selling timeshares, but it's more diversified than I initially expected. So about a third of the company's sales comes from these vacation ownership sales. So that is the scenario that I described with me as a kid, with my sister playing on arcade games for a couple hours while my parents were getting pitched on these deals. That's what that's this segment of revenue is vacation ownership sales. Now, over 20% comes from management and exchange. 14% comes from rental fees, 6% from financing. So, you know, they make money on interest too. And then there's a good 25% for cost reimbursement. Now, let's dig into the big picture numbers as we usually like to do on this podcast. Let's talk about the financials. Now, to make this as simple as possible, I'm just going to be comparing two separate sets of data points, one from the year 2012 and one from the year 2019. And the reason that I'm doing this is to kind of get a big picture view of the business's finances and how it's been trending over time. Because in any given year, we can have a lot of anomalies, there are impairment charges, there are tax cuts, there are laws that gets passed, there's coronavirus, you know, things that change the numbers very drastically. But if we look at the big picture, it can help us understand at a at a more holistic level, I'd say, how the business is trending. So first, let's look at sales. How is the top line growing? Well, in 2012, it made about a hundred, sorry, one and a half billion dollars in sales. And then in 2019, the company made over $4.3 billion in sales. Now, that's a 15% annual growth rate, which is great. But this does account for the 2018 ILG acquisition as well. So some of it was organic, but some of it was growth by acquisition. And this is kind of what you would expect because 2012 to 2019, that's a pretty good period of economic activity and economic growth. There are no recessions during that time frame. Things have been pretty good. Now, how much money did they make? Well, they made just $7 million in 2012, and that increased to $138 million in 2019. But frankly, those numbers don't really do the company that much justice because there are a lot of changes and adjustments that needed to be made. So even though that looks like an astronomical growth rate, it's really not. So let's look instead at earnings per share. Well, they made 18 cents per share in 2012 and over $3 per share in 2019. Now, I will say, I looked at the year-over-year data. This number fluctuates a lot. 
I mean, in 2013, the company was making $2.18 per share. So the adjusted number given by management for 2018 is actually way higher than what I just mentioned, $3. Management, according to their calculations, says that the adjusted earnings per share for last year was over $7 per share. So that's over double the number that is the GAAP reporting standards. Now let me explain what that is real quick. So GAAP is G-A-A-P, and that's an acronym that stands for Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. It's basically the system that all companies in the United States use to report their accounting to the SEC. Now, the reason that management reports different numbers is because there are usually different kinds of adjustments that these rules impose on companies with the way that they report their numbers. And it's meant to be a standardized way to do it. But what we're interested as investors is we're trying to get to the economic reality of the situation, right? I mean, frankly, who cares what standards it is as long as it's a good one? If it's a good one, then we use it. If there's pieces of it that aren't good, then we shouldn't use them, right? That's how we should operate as rational thinkers. So management believes that the company made over $7 per share last year, whereas the generally accepted accounting principles number is just over $3 per share. So that's a really big difference. So always look into the reason why management is making these adjustments. A lot of times, frankly, they're just trying to make their numbers look better. <laughs> and, you know, they're just trying to, to make themselves look better to shareholders. And they have an incentive to do so, right? They want people to invest in their stock. So always pay attention to the differences between those numbers. So it's a little bit hard to tell, frankly, from looking at the sales, net income, and earnings per share, how well this business really has done because their sales grew a lot, but a lot of it was due to acquisition, a huge acquisition. And then also their net income and earnings per share has fluctuated so much like year over year if you look at the data. So it's kind of hard to see where this business is trending. Is it really trending up? That's a little hard to tell. But it looks like yes, but there's a lot of volatility in between. Let's turn our attention now to the balance sheet. So balance sheet, this is where the net worth of the business is recorded. So one thing we like to look at is the cash. How much money do they actually have in cash? Well, in 2012, the company had just under $300 million in cash. And then in 2019, they had $700 million. So a big increase there. It seems like they have a decent amount of cash on hand. And then what about the debt? Let's look at the net debt. So net debt is basically how much debt did the company have um, not accounting for the cash they have on hand. So in 2012, the company had just under $700 million in net debt. And in 2019, they had just over $2 billion. So there was a big increase, but again, that's not surprising considering the acquisition of ILG in 2018. So nothing too crazy there. Now let's look at the cash flow statement. So the cash flow statement, this is telling us how much money is actually flowing into and out of the business, which is a slight differentiation uh, relative to the income statement. So the operating cash flow went from about $160 million to over $380 million. That's a 13% annual increase. So this is really good. So I like to see the fact that the operating cash flow has increased significantly over time. And then as far as the financing cash flow, the company had about 30 million go out in 2012 and about 330 million go out in 2019. So that's a big difference. And I wanted to understand like, why is this big, why is this difference so big between the two years? 
And the reason mostly has to do with the fact that, well, they did increase their debt costs. So they're paying more in interest now than they used to because they have more debt. But then also they purchased a lot of stock in 2019. I mean, the company purchased over $465 million worth of stock in 2019, which is a lot of money. So they were aggressively buying back their shares. And presumably this is to kind of clean up some dilution that happened as a result of the ILG acquisition. So I could see management doing that there. Another thing we should look at is dividends. How much money did we get paid directly out to owners if we were owners of this company during this time? Well, in 2012, the company actually didn't pay dividends. Remember in 2012, it was right after the spinoff in 2011. And so the company was kind of finding its footing, establishing its own culture outside of the primary Marriott corporate hierarchy. And so they didn't actually pay dividends during this time. But now they do pay dividends. And by now, I mean, as of 2019, um, so they were paying $1.89 per share in 2019. Now, also, I wanted to look at the shares outstanding. So they've been buying back stock, but has this really brought the shares down or has it not really been that effective? And we can look at data points between these two years in order to understand if that's true or not. So in 2012, the company had about 35 million shares outstanding. And in 2019, they had 41 million shares outstanding. So it's a little bit of an increase, but not much. And that's actually really respectable because they issued a lot of stock for that acquisition in 2018. So they've done some good job. They've done a good job like decreasing their share count in the past couple of years. Um, so that's good news. So now let's talk about the valuation and then some closing thoughts that I have surrounding this company and the stock. So yeah, let's talk about the impact of the virus. <laughs> It's 2020 now. It's great to look at 2019 numbers, but as I'm recording this, 2020 is actually coming to a close now. Uh, we're already now in the third quarter, so it's quickly winding down. So how did the virus impact the business? Well, as you might imagine, this is a travel-based company, so they got hit pretty hard. They reduced pay for a lot of their workers, and they ended up furloughing 40% of their employees. They stopped all of their dividend payments and all of their share repurchases for now. This makes perfect sense because they they got to they got to survive, right? So the business has been hit hard, but the good thing is because of all these moves, they plan to save around 300 million dollars throughout 2020 with all these actions. So this is really meaningful actually relative to the size of the business, and that's good because their expenses they tend to run pretty high. So they need to do this in order to survive. I mean, this is a business that they spend a lot of money on sales and marketing, right? Like I mentioned my childhood story a few minutes ago, all those arcade games, they cost money. All those, all that coffee and donuts and training salespeople and, and spending time on prospects who end up not buying, that costs a lot of money. So the expenses with this business are high, typically. So saving a lot of this money is helping them to survive in, in the near term. The good thing is that management expects to generate some positive cash flow in the second half of 2020, which is good news. Now, we'll see if this plays out or not. Now, bookings are definitely down for the second half of this year, but not as much as you might think. So I looked at some data, and in 2019, in the second half of 2019, this company had 2.6 million bookings. And for the same period in 2020, they've got 2.3 million bookings. I mean, yeah, that's an 11% decline, 
But that's not really so bad. I mean, people still want to keep their timeshares. They they still want to go on trips. It's not like they don't want to. There's this demand that is there. It just can't be realized due to the restrictions on travel and the the actual health risk of the virus as well is scaring people away. So that is restricting travel, but it's it's in many ways an artificial restriction because people definitely still want to travel and still are booking trips. It's just declined somewhat. But now let's talk about my main concern with this business. Okay, so my main concern with this business long-term is they need to entice future generations, which are my generation and younger. I'm a millennial, so millennial and Gen Z and below, like, they need to convince us to go through with vacation ownership. Now, I'll tell you, for my wife and I personally, like we prefer the flexibility of being able to book where we want, when we want, instead of having to pay annual maintenance fees, as well as a big upfront cost to become a member of a timeshare network. Now, that being said, I can, however, see the appeal, particularly for families who want to lock in some kind of rate and commit to regular vacations if they aren't regularly doing so. So I can kind of see the other side of it. Now let's talk briefly about valuation. So right now the stock trades around $90, $93 per share. Now during normal times, this is a business that has proven that they can make $3 per share in profits. So this is still pretty rich. I mean, that's about 30 times earnings. And I think that the market is pricing it more so based on its adjusted earnings, which I mentioned that earlier, of $7.81 per share. And that would give the stock a price-to-earnings ratio of just 12. So that actually seems pretty good, but it's kind of hard to trust that number. I mean, it's just so much higher than the gap results. I would have to dig into that a little bit deeper in order to understand the why behind that. So this business, I mean, it makes real money, but... I'm still not convinced of the long-term viability of the business model. I mean, think about the trends in home ownership right now versus renting. So that's showing that more people are renting than ever before. Now, if people are not willing to purchase a home that they're going to live in, that they're going to raise their family in, are they going to be willing to purchase a vacation that they're going to use once, maybe twice a year? I don't really know. And also think about the fact that a significant percentage of the company's revenue, I think it's around 50% or so, it comes from the baby boomer generation. It comes from a generation, two generations above me. And to me, that tells me that that's, that's basically a shrinking customer base because more and more people are retiring, more and more people are growing in that particular demographic, which could be good for business temporarily, but long-term, they've really got to get millennials and Gen Z couples and families buying into these vacation clubs. And I just don't know if we're as collectively going to do that based on kind of like the lack of flexibility with this type of a product. So maybe the product will have to be reinvented somehow. I'm not, I'm not really sure. But I do have a sense, based on my own personal skepticism, maybe my bias is clouding my judgment here, but I just don't really see the long-term viability of a business like this unless they start changing things in a big way. Because the idea of paying maintenance fees and paying big upfront costs just to reserve time in a particular time and place, I mean, even if you can exchange your time for a different destination at a different time, like why would you be beholden to that system? I'm not seeing the 
the overwhelming value here with this business that I've seen with some others. So maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't know, but that's just my personal opinion. So there is something to be considered here in the fact that the business does make real money and they have grown sales at a decent rate, but their profits just go up and down and up and down. And it seems kind of like a consumer discretionary type of business that has some cyclical elements. So I would just be wary from the investor perspective. But that's what I got to say on this episode today. Thank you so much for listening to me and checking out the Stock Stories podcast. And if you've made it this far and you enjoy this episode, hey, I'm glad that I could help you. The best way you can help me on this show right now is by sharing this podcast with someone else. Share it with another investor or would-be investor that you think could benefit from hearing this information that I share week to week. That would be a huge help. So thank you in advance for sharing this podcast with, with others. And I will definitely see you next week. If you want to reach out to me and connect to me, let's talk. Send me a direct message on Instagram at Stock Storyteller. That's at Stock Storyteller. Or if you prefer email, you can send me an email at alex at stockstoriespodcast.com. All right, thanks, and I'll see you next week. information presented here on Stock Stories is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. You and you alone are responsible for your investment and financial decisions. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, or financial advisor that can analyze your specific situation in the context of your goals and circumstances.